Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, a packed hour of challenging discussion addressing important issues and topics affecting Christians across the nation. Join the conversation via email at comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, David Fiorazzo. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of Stand Up For The Truth, and thank you for sharing our podcast on social media. I can't emphasize that enough. I know I say it every day, but we uh, have been banned, shadow banned on Facebook, uh, meaning we can see what we post, but more often than not, other people don't get it in their news feed. So you're saying, well, every now and then I see one of your posts. Well, that means someone must have shared it. And then if a friend of yours shares it, then you go, oh, okay, so-and-so shared it. It'll draw you to the page. So people go directly to our page and share it. That's what you have to do. Uh, Stand up WI uh, on Facebook. So thank you so much. Um, Interesting topic today, picking up where we left off uh, last month and uh, a lot to get to. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer and open this up. Father, uh, thank you for today. We, We need you, Lord. We need discernment and we need wisdom. And Lord, show us how to live in these times, which the church age, the last days, and we don't know how long we have, Lord, but help us redeem the time. And Lord, help us be aware of the deceptions that are going on all around us. Help us to um, protect the church, kind of like a guard dog. Help us to be very, um, um, well, not overly protective, but Lord, uh, please help us uh, when it comes to our brothers and sisters and younger believers and what they might fall into or be deceived by. Uh, help us to raise awareness and just lead this hour, guide this hour as we talk about uh, paganism and the godlessness that is just rampant, not only in the, in the United States, but worldwide. Uh, we lift this time up to you, Lord. We thank you for it, and uh, we praise you for your goodness and your faithfulness and that you are sovereign and and the eternal God that we can trust in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so many gods, so little time. Um, There are over 3 million pagans in the U.S. alone, and they have been working to gain influence, and they're pretty successful. Um, The increase of young people, for example, identifying themselves as Wiccans or neo-pagans is due in part to the media's propagandizing and the glorification of the supernatural as well as the occult themes in Hollywood in the last several decades. Well, the darkness of the occult, of earth worship, climate change, Satanism, witchcraft, all these things put things above the Most High God. And to a great degree, some of these things have been accepted in general in our culture in the U.S. or North America. But here's the question we need to ask, and we'll try to answer that today. To what extent have these things seeped in to our Christian churches and places of worship and the hearts of our young people? Today's guest, we welcome back Carl Teichrib. He's authored specialized reports, books, over 200 articles and essays on globalization and its many subtopics. Carl is a conference speaker and has given lectures across North America and lives in Western Canada with his wife and children. And we're going to talk about Chapter 7 in his book, Game of Gods. Carl, welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth, brother. David, it's good to be with you, and uh, looking forward to doing our show together. Yes, always, always. Uh, you're a favorite here uh, in-house. Uh, Spike saying over the, yes, Carl Tycrib is back. Um, <laughs> but hey, uh, we had, when we talked last, the coronavirus had not yet been... Uh, as big of a threat or maybe perceived threat, and there weren't so many things shutting down at that time. Air travel, countries affected, uh, uh, small towns affected, uh, churches even. Um, So I just want to find out, you're in the northern part of Canada, I think. Is that right? I'm in rural Manitoba, and uh, the virus has certainly affected us here in that it's shut down 
down businesses. It's, well, it's shut the border between Canada and the United States. Wow. Uh, for my wife, my wife works in the healthcare field, so she'll be extra busy as we go into this. Um, our daughter-in-law lost her uh, uh, work, as so many others have, as their business shut down. Wow. You know, the, the list goes on. There, there is definitely impact, uh, personal impacts. Hmm. Uh, for myself, I had a full slate this summer of speaking engagements, research uh, events to attend, Beginning with last week, which was supposed to be to to a witchcraft conference in Minneapolis, and then one after the next, they shut down all the way until until into July. And, hmm. uh, so you're all of a sudden finding yourself going, well, I guess I'm not going anywhere. Wow. <laughs> Even though I know nobody who has the virus, I'm not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. We hmm. seem to be all of a sudden stuck. Yes, and I know that nobody has a crystal ball. Only God knows the extent of this, what the end result will be. But I'm thinking, well, wow, shutting things down even in even in June or July, why not just say, all right, I'll put out a little uh, notice saying we may have to reschedule this or we may cancel this. I mean, I understand April. I understand that even though... Who knows what could happen in 30 days or less. But May even, I'm thinking, well, hopefully by May, maybe things will, I mean, I, I'm an optimist. I'm hoping that the, I'm, I trust uh, um, the, the people that have been trained to work in these areas, the healthcare communities and the, and the doctors and the scientists and those that are working on this. I want to get more insight from uh, about your wife. I know she's not being interviewed here, but I'm sure you've had some interesting conversations about her and the the reality of the threat, but also are people kind of um, taking it to the extreme when it comes to maybe a little panic? Oh, yes. Uh, we're not immune to having people scared of their own shadow, and that's kind of <laughs> what has happened within our culture. Mm. Uh, we've watched as stores in, in local communities all of a sudden strip, are stripped out of toilet paper and stripped out of other essentials. Um, at the same time, that that wave kind of has slowed down, and now people are, are a little bit more um, using a little more common sense, I guess you could put it that way, and, and are not hoarding or rushing to gather as much as they need or as they think they may need. Um, but I'm, for my wife, she she works in a, as a healthcare aide in a in a very small hospital, and I mean David, very very small. And it is, they're anticipating that there will be a, a fair amount of people moved in from senior homes and and from senior facilities, just as as this begins to have a, a, a ripple effect, not just simply because of the virus, but because of of the uh, extra things that happen as staff now gets moved around as staff gets repositioned, as there's now a, a reorienting of, of priorities in certain, in certain functions of the healthcare industry. And so they, they know that there's going to be a, uh, it's going to impact even her itty bitty hospital. Mm. What I find interesting, David, is while this is definitely touching every single life who's, who's listening to your radio program, what I find really interesting is not the virus itself and what, it's, what it, ha it has the potential to do, but the response at the global level What's being talked about? What's the, the you could look at it as the um, uh, opportunity within the challenge, what that's beginning to look like. Yesterday, a, a, a newspaper article came out from in The Guardian. Gordon Brown, former UK prime minister and labor leader, openly called for a world government yes. to tackle this, this issue. Uh -huh. So that, that's huge. Uh, the World Health Organization, and now your Democrat Party in your country is saying, hey, what we need to do is create digital currencies to re replace Finland. I mean, besides the fact that Gordon Brown is calling for a world government to handle this, we know the World Health Organization calling for a, a digital, global digital currencies to replace physical money. Uh, the U.S. stimulus package, the the legislation that came out, the Democrats were trying to put in that package, a call to create a, a, a United States digital U.S. dollar. And then last, I believe it was last night, the G20 had a, a meeting um, where they were calling for whatever it takes 
to commit themselves to defeating this virus nationally, regionally, and having a global response, including rebuilding the international economy and specifically stipulating a global green stimulus package that would go with this. So it's fascinating how the virus is being uh, leveraged for more globalism, not less, mm-hmm. more internationalism, not less. And it's moving us quickly uh, to, to, to all of a sudden accept and demand global responses. Uh, and so I'm finding that a really interesting side to, to what's taking shape here. Not just simply the fact people are, get, are getting sick, but the response is we need more globalism, more integration, mm-hmm. more one world. Yeah, and that's the push. They're going to use every opportunity um, as the left always uh, likes to use a crisis for their purposes. And, and uh, I mean, the, just the spending plan that was passed, um, what was it, $2.3 trillion? Um, we're, They're just creating money out of thin air, it seems. But let's go to the just briefly to the stats. I check this every day when we uh, get on the program. About 125,900 have recovered from the coronavirus and overall worldwide about uh, 25,000 have died. I'm looking at um, the United States. Um, It looks like uh, 1,300 have died and I'm trying to just see where's Canada. There's Canada, 39 deceased. Um, So it's still, uh, we're still trying to contain this. What do you see happening? And then we need to move on to uh, to our main topic today. But what do you see uh, happening and around you as far as the the state or the uh, country's leaders making decisions that are really impacting uh, people and really almost uh, controlling people to some degree? Well, that's a really good question. Uh, My goodness, I'm from Canada, and our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, had introduced... uh, um, he had introduced, a, I guess it was a bill in our House of Commons that wanted, uh, he was looking really to expand federal power, specifically power to, to increase taxation. Of course. Uh, to, <laughs> yeah, of course, exactly. And, and the uh, opposition party, the Conservative Party, uh, was able to defeat it, to step in and stop it. But there was, it, was, it was interesting because it wasn't really about the virus per se. I mean, it can be argued that way. It wasn't about the virus per se. The virus was simply that, that uh, uh, the reason to say we need more taxation power, we need, we need greater enhanced federal powers. So that's here too. We're talking like that. I mean, our, our, our federal government, our provincial governments, even our local governments, um, everybody's looking to see how do we respond? I get that. I get that. But at the same time now, how do we back out of this corner if all of a sudden we begin to realize that we just we have given away our freedoms and our liberties and have expanded our government to, to do things we never have accepted otherwise? And that's what we're dealing with here in America. Some Christians are saying, regardless of health concerns, should we ever stop assembling together and having church services or worship? And so we're trying to balance that out, doing what, not what the government says, but just what we know is right and what we know is cautious um, and doing our due diligence. But at the same time, some of us are struggling with the fact that everything's online. We're not, we're not social people anymore. And the, the internet and iPhones and technology had already taken us away from being a social society. I mean, the last decade or two, but that's, that's for another podcast. Uh, Carl Teichrib, let's talk about your book, Game of Gods. Let's open up chapter seven. And I want to share a quote with some friends um, with the, and listeners. It says, reject the transcendent God who created the universe and humanity worships itself. That's from Game of Gods, and um, I know that could be a common quote throughout the entire book, but humanity will worship itself or whatever else once you reject the one true living God. So in Chapter 7, it's called Magical Reenchantment, and there's a quote that says, The only hope, or so it seems to me, lies in a reenchantment of the world. That was from Morris Berman. What did he mean by that? Well, first of all, the concept of reenchantment is grounded in the idea that humanity has has lost its wonder, 
has lost has lost its its sense of mystery has lost its grounding and so we need to find some we need to find some new story some new narrative that says uh, this is where wonder can be found. This is where, where we always go, aha, I have meaning, I have purpose. There is a purpose for life. There is a sense of renewal and and mystery and all that goes into it. So Berman was was talking about what we need is is we need some new worldview. We need some worldview that says that there is this new con- connection, this new sense of wonder and connection, a, a sense of oneness. And so reenchantment, in fact, the subtitle of my book is The Temple of Man in the Age of Reenchantment. Reenchantment says we go back to our imagination, we go back to the pagan past, we go back into the world of myth. And it's there that we're going to find our sense of purpose, our sense of meaning, our sense of connection with nature and with each other. It is a, a very definite replacement of the Judeo-Christian worldview that says, that says no, our sense of purpose, our sense of meaning, our connection, all that is reflected in Jesus Christ, Amen. in God as creator, not in the creation itself, which is, of course, the Romans' one argument, that as we worship and serve the creation, rather than the creator, then we see man being given over to a debased mind. Reenchantment says we need to explore that. We need to explore the, the creation as a place where we find our grounding and our meaning. And when I, when I talk about re-enchantment in the book, I, I do bring out the concept of myth, because so many people think that myth is simply, simply just fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Myth, myths are, are stories that really have no bearing or no purpose anymore. I make the argument that it's quite the opposite. Mm. Acts as a framing story. It acts as now a story that tells people where to begin to look for their purpose and their sense of identity. And what's fascinating is I've gone to pagan conferences, and of course, we talked last month about my attendance at Pantheacon, mm-hmm. how myths, those old myths, the old gods and goddesses, are now the uh, the substance of what the Wiccan pagan community uh, gravitates to. In fact, there would not be a pagan community without those old myths. Mm. Well, and as we said at the top of this broadcast, paganism, paganism is growing, um, and part of that, I mean, there's probably a parallel that as people become disillusioned with what they call, quote, organized religion or the church, and understand a lot of churches don't do church right. It's not biblical Christianity. I get it. There's a lot of false teachings out there in churches, so I get that. But to throw out the one true God because of how one denomination does worship or does church is just not the right choice. But I think a lot of people are doing that, and I think it's because they weren't. They were either not converted to begin with, or maybe they just uh, are looking for something that the world can provide, and not what not what Jesus Christ can provide. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yes, and you know, I mean, in the very beginning of the of this hour, we talked a little bit about, or we brought it that that there's a, an impact with the church. There is a yes. Uh, um, an influence within the church, mm-hmm. and and primarily you can see it first and foremost within the green movement. The environmental movement, our green culture, is very rooted in a paganistic worldview. In Absolutely, fact, you argue that's really what it comes out of. Mm-hmm. And and so you see churches who have embraced that way of thinking. What what is paganism? Ultimately, what is paganism? What is witchcraft? Well, it's rebellion, biblically. It also could be considered a religion of nature. That's how they identify themselves, where nature becomes the focal point. So it really is Romans 1. But I can give you examples of that. I've got in my hand, I have from the year 2000, a women's report from the Mennonite Central Committee. I mean, when you think of Mennonites, I come from a Mennonite background, you think of conservative-minded people. So this is a women's report on women and ritual, and it's all about how to find your identity within your, uh, this is going to sound kind of gross, but within your menstruation cycle. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's what the report's about. So it goes this way, it says, 
Um, there's power in the blood. Women, Christian ritual, and the blood mysteries address the bodies of women in a Christian context. I discovered that what has often been labeled mundane or even unclean by the Church has been an opportunity for meeting the holy for many women. As women, we are now claiming ritual in our lives. We are finding again the importance of our own bodies, whether through the blood of menstruation or the touch of another. We are reclaiming our ties to that great body upon which we dwell, Mother Earth. We are encountering new ways to connect with the Holy One. And it goes on to talk about uh, rituals, turning to the corners, uh, facing the fire, and then turning to the, to the different directions, um, that we're all connected to stardust. We have to have earth-conscious rituals. David, this is pagan. Mm-hmm. This is as pagan as it gets. Yeah. But it has a veneer of Christianity attached to it. And I'm seeing the Christian community embracing what are fundamentally pagan worldviews uh, with, a, with a veneer of Christian language placed on top of it. Mm-hmm. Yep, and we're going to see more and more of this uh, as we move through our interview here. I, we're going to take a little tour of the United States and some major cities in the States, and we are going to talk about some gods and goddesses and idols that are wide out in the open— it's, they're not trying to hide these anymore, including in our state capital, Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital. And then we'll take a little trip to Canada. And uh, can't wait to get into these next couple pages in Chapter 7 of your book, Game of Gods. We're with Carl Teichrib. More when we come back. Your monthly financial support of StandUpForTheTruth.com is needed and appreciated. Now, back to today's Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. The book is called Game of Gods. The author, Carl Teichrib, is with us right now, and we're getting into his tour of the United States that you uh, uh, talked about in Chapter 7 of your book, Magical Reenchantment. And your daughter asked a question when you were in Nashville, Tennessee, and she said, Daddy, why are we looking at a false god? Will you set that up for us, Carl? Okay. Yes. You know, she asked a great question. Allow <laughs> me to read a, a little bit of the text coming up to that question. Okay. This fits, this fits with the question of mythology. It goes like this. An imposing goddess stood before my young family, bold and commanding, dressed in glistening gold. Around her wrists were bracelets made of delicate snakes. A hideous gorgon head was visible between her breasts, and she wore a lavishly decorated helmet with three combs. Protected by the goddess's battle shield was an, an ominous-looking serpent, head erect, body coiled, its tail slithering behind it, her feet. Against her left arm rested a spear almost as long as she was tall. In the palm of her extended right hand was a winged figurine-like character. The room she stood in was impressive, too. Ancient-looking statues and sculptures lined the walls, and the high ceiling was held in place by vaulted colonnades. I, it was a setting that invoked a sense of awe. My wife and son had entered the majestic room first, immediately catching sight of the diva. Our five-year-old daughter, holding my hand, noticed her as well. How could you not? She was the center of attention, and her deadpan gaze rested on all who approached. Daddy, my daughter's voice sounded distant in the expansive space. Why are we looking at a false god? Hmm. Now, that was perceptive, David. Yes. Where were we? We were at Athena's temple looking upon a 42-foot-tall, gold-gilded image of the goddess of war. 42 feet tall. That's right. If I was to take you back into ancient uh, pagan Athens, you would have seen a building of this size with a statue like this. You would have seen what I have just described for you. Or you don't have to go to ancient Athens. You don't need a time machine. Just go to Nashville, Tennessee, because that's where I was. What? My family. Turing, yes, a full-sized replica of the Parthenon, including a 42-foot-tall gold-gilded statue of Athena, the goddess of war. What is that doing in Nashville, Tennessee? Do you know why? how long it's been there, why it was erected there? Uh, yes, yes. It was, it was part of, I believe, one of the world fairs uh, and, and then placed uh, in Nashville and has been there for, well, it's been there for generations. Wow. But, you know, you can go to pretty well any American city, or you should look at, at, at different symbols and different seals, and you will see all kinds of imagery going back to the idea of myth, going back to this idea of, of, of a pagan 
worldview. I mean, in Chicago, um, on top of the Board of Trade buildings stands a massive goddess, the goddess Ceres. And at one time before before buildings were taller, the other uh, buildings kind of uh, grew up larger than the Board of Trade buildings. At one time, she stood on top and looked down on all of Chicago. Um, Cirrus also stands on top of the Missouri State Capitol building, and, and Nike is on top of Arizona's Capitol Dome. Oh, okay, if, slow if down, want... Carl, slow down just a little bit. For, for those of us that want to understand, these are all different gods or goddesses. And, right. and uh, so I'm a little—I understand Nash Vegas and maybe Chicago, but now you're going over to Missouri, and it's a different god. Is Nike— First of all, Ceres, C-E-R-E-S, is, is that, um, what does that God represent? Grain, grain uh, agriculture, which is why she's placed on the Board of Trade building in Chicago. Okay. And she was put there in the beginning. Um, huh. Yeah, I mean, you can go uh, almost anywhere in the United States, you're going to see this. You go to Washington, D.C., and it's loaded, absolutely loaded. The central, the central towering figure of Washington, D.C., of course, is Washington's monument, which is an Egyptian obelisk, which is, goes directly back into the mythologies of ancient Greece, that religious pagan worldview. When I went to PantheaCon, um, back in February, it was in San Jose, California. So I took the time to walk downtown San Jose and found the Mesoamerican deity statue Quetzalcoatl, a coiled snake sitting in downtown San Jose. You can't escape this. Once you see it, you realize it is all over the United States. The United States, a land known for its crosses and steeples and churches, has the exact opposite representation on your high places, your political high places, the high places of commerce, the high places of, of, of knowledge and industry, where you see over and over again these mythic images, these themes of gods and goddesses of the ancient mm. pagan worldview are on top of, of the buildings that we've erected to represent our political and educational and, and industrial um, uh, world. So, yeah, you don't have to travel in a wow. time machine to ancient pagan cultures. No. We, we have it all around us. Oh, it, me, it's there. It's, it's in front of us. Let me ask you this. Let's, let's go back to um, Nike. Um, this is very interesting. The goddess of victory. I just pulled that up. Carl, by the way, how many pages is uh, chapter seven in your book? I think it's almost 60. It's got, uh, <laughs> 60 I believe, like pages. 258 Almost 258, I have 258 footnotes. Attention to it's, detail, man. It's a very man. documented book. Well, I'm learning. We're just a couple pages in, and I'm learning so much. But I just realized, maybe, call me naive, but I just realized Nike, the shoe company, take it, it's a winged, uh, the, the god Nike is a, a winged Nike victory symbol because it represents victory, the goddess of victory. And so that wing symbol on the side of Nike's shoes, that, I'm thinking that's where they got it. Am I just, just you know, naive in thinking that, that uh, a shoe company wouldn't be interested in this kind of stuff? No, I think it's intentional. Wow. I think it's very intentional. Fascinating the, to me. The, the, this is chosen. The, these things are chosen. It's not accidental. And when you realize that you have within your own country hundreds, and I mean hundreds and hundreds of emblems and statues and seals that depict different, uh, that, that pagan, that pagan reality, that pagan worldview. It's yeah, it's, it's all of a sudden it's in your face. Like if you go to Birmingham, Alabama, and my, and my wife just texted this to me, she goes, talk about five points. If you go to Birmingham, Alabama, <laughs> you go to Birmingham, Alabama uh, there's a place in Birmingham called five points or five, five uh, streets come together and uh, uh, there's a, a, a little it's a little garden statue fountain area, and there is an image that is very much Baphomet, the horned uh, goat-headed deity hmm. reading a book of knowledge to all these stone animals looking at 
what is essentially Baphomet, and it's extremely wow. occultic. And I, I remember when we were there once looking at this at this thing, and this guy comes up to me, and he had alcohol on his breath. He was he had a little bit too much to drink, but he was really open. His his tongue was was loose, and he comes up to us, and he's looking at us as we're looking at these statues, and and he goes to something to the effect of, "Oh, this is all occult and shouldn't be here." And he's right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, you mentioned, is, is it Vulcan? Is that the Roman deity of fire? That's right. And that one overlooks Birmingham. Okay. So yes. and that, that, that was part of the 1904, uh, I believe, the St. Louis World Fair. 1904. So this has been there for more than a century. Uh, just amazing to me. Well, I guess it shouldn't, right? It shouldn't have. As we started off the program, if you're not believing in the one true God, if you're not a Christian or someone who who trusts the God of the universe, who created all things, then we are obviously going to either rebel or end up somehow believing in other gods. Um, you talk about a 92-feet statue um, in San Francisco, the tallest one. 92 feet, a statue of Venus? That's right, yes. Uh, that one was wow. was uh, uh, opened to the public uh, recently. I think it was 2017. Mm-hmm. Wow, that, that, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to have something on your little, uh, you know, mantle on your fireplace or something <laughs> outside, outside your house or whatever, but my goodness, this is a massive statue in, uh, in one major city and a lot of other cities uh, fo- following suit with different gods. How about uh, Rockefeller Center, New York City, that, that bronze 18-foot-high um, uh, Prometheus, is that what it is? That's right. That's right. Yes. But but you know something? You don't have to go to to New York. You don't have to go. I mean, you're you're from Wisconsin. You don't even have to go to Chicago. You just, I mean, Chicago is pretty close to you. But you can go to your state capital. You can go to, to Madison and go downtown Madison uh, to your Madison uh, uh, Capitol building, to your you know, Wisconsin Capitol building. And I think you have uh, Athena uh, uh, standing on mm. top of, of your Capitol dome. Yep, yep. No doubt. This is just this is just fascinating to me. And I hope our, our listeners are understanding this influence is not something new. It's been around a long, long time and it goes back to our founders. So let's go over to Washington, D.C., Carl, and uh, talk about some of the uh, idols, the, the monuments there and uh, what you found out in your research as far as our nation's capital. I know we could do probably a whole podcast on just Washington, D.C., but give us a couple highlights. Oh, sure. Well, of course, Washington, D.C., you've got, um, well, the, 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 the biggest one that stands out, obviously, is, is Washington's monument, which is a, an Egyptian obelisk, a symbol of, of, first of all, the sun and also of, of fertility and sexuality. Uh, you've got you've got a, a lot of different statues, a lot of different monuments dedicated to, uh, has, that, has that pagan flavoring to it. Um, Symbols even of justice, things that you would you take for granted, have these have have these connotations to it. This is interesting because the the city of Washington is built during the during the Enlightenment era, and yet the symbology that comes out over and over again is is not a humanist, high reasoning. Uh, symbolism. It is a classical Roman Greco sense of paganism instead and and but i mean there are some newer ones that that are there on embassy row in washington there's a a a brand new statue great big white gleaming statue of a hindu goddess uh i believe that that is standing uh at the indonesian embassy um if if you want to see a a really interesting example of of paganism you have to go to the house of the temple in washington dc which is the headquarters for the for the scottish rite of freemasonry the southern jurisdiction and it is absolutely loaded uh, wow. with with pagan iconic uh, icons and and pagan symbolism and we've so done... here we have the land of crosses and church steeples yes. and and facing us all the time. I mean, and you can't, you can't ignore it. It's always there. We just tend to forget about it because we see it daily. Um, we have all these symbolic representations of ancient myth. Again, myths are, are, are not stories. Myth is telling us something. It's, we ignore it because we think it's art, and this is something my wife reminds me of. Uh, we ignore it because we think it's art. 
but it's more than art. It's art that's saying something. It's telling us something. It's pointing us to something. And it's that ancient pagan mythological worldview that still remains with us. And today, if you, if you, David, if you had attended Pantheon with me, you would have heard the names of those deities. You mm-hmm. have heard uh, veneration to those gods and goddesses, those exact ones that we have representation of on our state capitals. And some of these are just really, I mean, I can understand maybe, maybe from an artistic standpoint, not even uh, spiritual or religious, but just some of these uh, idols, statues, uh, figures are just interesting, if nothing else. There's the, the one I'm looking at now is, uh, how do you pronounce it, Sarwaswati? Saraswati? Yes. I'm looking at that, yep. and, and it looks like she's playing, uh, it's an elongated guitar of, of some kind. She's got four arms and, and just, just some bizarre things. Now, is that a Hindu goddess? Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and there's a lot of... Now that Hinduism uh, is becoming more accepted in the West, you have a number of Hindu temples across the United States. Uh, they're in Canada, too. And so you will see at, at different Hindu temples uh, various deities set up uh, to their gods and goddesses. So there's a shift. Uh, there's a shift from you know in terms of, of at one time you would never have seen that. Oh, my now, goodness. Now yeah. you do see that. I'm going to ruffle some feathers here. We've got two minutes to ruffle feathers here, Carl, before we have to take another break. But I see some of these statues uh, posing uh, in—they look like, to us, yoga positions. But what are yoga positions? They're mimicking Hindu gods, aren't they? Yes, yes. I mean, the whole idea of of yoga is a Hindu concept. There is no yoga without Hinduism. Mm -hmm. There is no Hinduism without yoga. Exactly. It's essential. I know we've said that it's before. Only us, it's only us as Christians, David, it's only us as Christians who try to justify what is essentially a pagan activity to fit within our personal culture. Okay, before we wrap up this segment and take a break, there, how would you respond to someone who says, well, Carl, it's just, it's just exercise, exercise relaxation or something that's healthy? Doing yoga. Uh, there's no doubt, because you're stretching. Mm-hmm. You're stretching, so there is a health benefit to that. I acknowledge that. But what is happening is essentially spiritual activity. Listen, if I would tell you that going to a mosque, bowing to Mecca, and praying five times in a mosque would give you good mental health, would you go and do that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no. So why do we accept that from the Hindu perspective? Why do we accept the Hindu, Hindu culture? Uh, you know, I find it interesting. When I go to these events, uh, that we had witch, witchcraft, yoga, um, exercises at Pantheon, when I go to Burning Man, when I go to various other events like this, you see a lot of yoga. And they don't hide what it is. I appreciate the fact that they're honest about it. Mm -hmm. They're very honest about it. It's only we Christians who will take something like this and now try to justify it for our own for our own perspective, for our own for our own use. And it's almost like, uh, if I could use the term evangelical, from the aspect of Hinduism, they're trying to you know, spread the uh, Hindu uh, religion and practices, and we're helping them do that. I mean, there are churches that are holding uh, yoga sessions in their churches for women or whoever else. And I'm thinking, boy, it's a head-scratcher, Carl, and we could spend more time on that, but we have to move on. We're talking about your book, Game of Gods. We're in Chapter 7, barely getting through because there's so much in here. It's called Magical Reenchantment. More with Carl Teichrib when we come back. Thank you for listening and sharing today's show via StandUpForTheTruth.com slash podcast. Now, back to Stand Up For The Truth. Here's David Fiorazzo. Today's guest, Carl Teichrib, author and researcher, and we're talking about his book, Game of Gods, and... And uh, you were talking about something when we were on break, Carl, that you wanted to mention that is in Chapter 6 that kind of leads into what we're talking about here in Chapter 7. Yes, yes. Um, Chapter 6, the first four pages, opens up with my attendance uh, going to the Lotus Krishna Temple in Utah. Now, everybody thinks of Utah as Mormon, but south of Salt Lake City... um, in a very Mormon county, uh, Spanish Fork, is uh, the the Radha Krishna Temple, the Lotus Temple. And I had spent a little bit of time there, and of course there you see different Hindu deities set up, uh, because it is a Hindu temple. And what was fascinating was I was talking to the guru there, and the guru explained to me 
that we are, we being the Hindu community, are effectively evangelizing the West, and we're doing it primarily through yoga and the Hindu festival of colors, uh, the Holi festival, which now is, has become very secularized in the fact that we've got color runs all oh over the place and goodness. color activities. But recognizing that that essentially is uh, a Hindu activity, a Hindu celebration, yes. that these two together, especially yoga, has has now uh, has now had the effect of evangelizing the West to the Hindu worldview. Not, and this is really important, David, to understand. Not that people will go and join an ashram. In fact, that came out. It's not about that. You are not going to accept the Hindu faith, but you are being Hinduized in your worldview. Explain to us. I've got pulled up that picture of the Radha Krishna Temple. In Utah, the Festival of Colors, we've seen that they're doing color runs here in the States, and it's usually for um, either a nonprofit or they're trying to do a fundraiser, and they're having this. It's all about, hey, just having fun and being out there and doing it. I don't, I don't think a lot of people understand why they're doing it. No, no, most people don't. And, and, and right behind the, 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 the Krishna temple, the Lotus temple, they've got a warehouse full of colors because they supply colors to a lot of the color runs and the, and the color events. And it's a lot of fun. I'm not going to deny that. Mm-hmm. The kids are having a great time right. doing coloring on, e- on each other and <laughs> running around. And, and, you know, there's a lot of energy and there's, there's a good feeling to it all. But it is essentially a, a it comes out of a Hindu festival, the Holi Festival of Colors, which will be taking place, this is the end of March, it's taking place now, it's roughly in the same time frame. I'm sure most of them will be shut down in the U.S. just as they will be in Canada because there are large gatherings. But it's, it's celebrating Krishna, uh, and, and it's celebrating uh, uh, Radha, his mm. sister wife, as they throw colors on each other um, to, to celebrate. And in, and in fact, at the Lotus Temple, uh, which is... The, the Holy Festival, when it takes place there, has about 70,000 people who come to, to the temple for the Festival of Colors. I have friends who go to witness to people attending the Festival of Colors, which mostly, and this is the crazy part, David, most of those who are coming at that temple are Mormons. And they're coming and they're singing and chanting, Hare Krishna, Rama, Rama, Krishna, Krishna, mm-hmm. throwing the colors on each other, wow. engaging in, in an openly Hindu event, and yet not seeing that this is a problem, that this is religious syncretism. I thought it was interesting since you brought up um, Salt Lake City uh, as well. Recently, the headlines about, it's not funny, but there was an earthquake in, in, um, let's see, Salt Lake City, and it damaged the uh, Latter-day Saint Temple. And I think what happened was the horn uh, on the top of the temple, you know, the... the, um, That's right. what, What, did you read about that? I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, apparently, it broke off. It uh, broke off. Yes. Earthquake. Uh, but but he's still standing. The guy or whoever that is 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 that Michael yes, or yes, Mar- Moroni, the angel Moroni. Moroni. That's right. That's right. Their their angel. Okay. All right. Back to your book, Carl. We uh, run out of time. We've got about uh, seven minutes left, and um, we just we're getting into Washington D.C. and we didn't really get over to Canada. When you're talking about what kind of gods or temples or deities they have in public places in Canada. You, you talk about Toronto, you talk about downtown Vancouver. Can you give us some ideas and how common these things are with what we're doing in America? Not as common as the United States, okay. um, but yes, on, on, our, on our buildings, on our legislative buildings, you'll, you'll find uh, imagery uh, that comes out of, of the pagan worldview. In my own province of Manitoba, we have what's called the Golden Boy, and he stands on top of the dome of our Manitoba legislative uh, building. And he's a gold-gilded statue, and he's really the gold-gilded statue of Mercury, which is a, uh, a Roman deity connected to commerce, magic, and Specifically, he is a messenger into the underworld. Interesting. It, in, in the Greek worldview, he was understood as Hermes. But for us in Manitoba, he's called Golden Boy. Uh, what's really interesting about the Manitoba Legislative Building is there is enough occult uh, symbology, and the construction of the building itself has enough occult architectural design that you can take an esoteric and occult tour of the building. 
And in fact, it's been a building used in studies of Rosicrucian, Masonic, and esoteric symbology. People go to it specifically to study that. Hmm. How about, you mentioned another one, um, uh, where, where am I, Toronto's uh, Prince's Gates? What, the, what is that? Oh, yeah, that, that's, um, it is, it is a, a large arch, it's an arch of triumph, and uh, yes, again, on the Princess Gate, and it's a large, large statue, it's a large structure, and there, I, I, I believe it's, it's Athena, uh, Athena or Nike, I can't remember which one right now, um, and, and there she stands on top as well, guarding the entrance, guarding the way in. My wife's from Toronto, so that's why I thought oh, okay. I want to find find out about that or about that. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, one more thing in this on page one hundred and seventy in um, Game of Gods, uh, you talk about uh, a statue. Uh, let's see, Embassy Royal Washington D.C. Okay, you mentioned that one. Where was the one I was going to wanted to ask you about? In New York, they've got a thirty-seven foot statue of the Great Buddha. And this is the largest yes. Buddhist statue in the Western Hemisphere in New York. I find that to be interesting because it's you know not over where Buddhism started, but in New York right. is the largest Buddhist statue, and and we we see them in all kinds of you know restaurants and public places across the North America. But I'd love for you to just talk a little bit more about that. Well, you know the fact is that that, that you now see these statues of these these temples in North America demonstrates that within what was looked upon at one point in time as being a, a land that held to a Judeo-Christian worldview, now we see a shift. We now see religious pluralism. We're not secular. We see a... a we, we actually now have a smorgasbord of spiritual and religious traditions that we can pull from. And what was, what was in the East in the past has now come West and is part of now our culture. And so we're, we're seeing those representations... Uh, in temples and in statues across North America. Mm -hmm. it's, it's that change. It's that change over as, as the West now looks for re-enchantment somewhere else. We're not looking at, at, at the biblical model anymore. We're mm -hmm. not going back to, to the pages of Genesis to Revelation. Right. We're looking for some form of spirituality, and we're looking for it in uh, whether it's Eastern religions or it's in the pagan myths of old but there is a return. It's not. It's it's not uh, a move towards secularism. It's a move towards spirituality. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's where this kind of quest, uh, for the lack of a better word, when people s are seeking, that's where it takes you. Because a lot of people today, because of their you know whatever angst toward growing up in a religion or a denomination, they say, "I'm not religious. I'm spiritual." And so what does the, the path of spirituality will take you down all these just just countless roads and contrary to popular opinion, they do not all lead to the one true God. Talk about that, Carl. Well, you're right. And, and sometimes I wonder, what do you mean when you say you're religious? Pardon me, you're spiritual, but yes. not religious. Yeah, right. Uh, well, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> you you did stretches, yoga stretches until something snapped? I mean, you, you toked up until you, you, you saw some kind of a vision? Like, what's going on? I, I have a friend, uh, he's a Lutheran pastor, and he says, I'm religious, but not spiritual. And he throws people for a loop by saying that. Um, <laughs> I'm religious, so, yeah. but not spiritual, yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. I mean, it's just a you know, it's a it's, it's a twist on it. Um, but but we have a culture that that wants to say we are spiritual because we want to find some kind of connection. Mm -hmm. We want to feel like we have some purpose. Like mm -hmm. there is a sense of belonging, a sense of connecting to something bigger than yourself. So spirituality is huge. Listen, when I go to Burning Man, it's very very spiritual. Yeah. Even though they don't talk of any specific gods or goddesses, uh, at least not on the larger scale, uh, but they have temples erected, and it, it's not temples to any specific deity. It's a place where you go to discover your own spirituality, where where it's about you. Nonetheless, David, that still points to the fact that we are worshiping, serving creation and not the creator, mm -hmm. whether it's yes. uh, an imagery that's found in the mythic past or it's me elevating myself. It's still the creation worshiping itself. Wow. I, that, it's still Romans 1. That, exactly, Romans 1. That, Carl, I think 
could set us up for a whole other podcast talking about environmentalism, earth worship, and this climate change movement that worships creation rather than God, the creator. We've got to go, but you reminded me of this uh, verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God has set eternity in the heart of man. So we have a void. Every human being has a void that only the one true God can fill. But that won't prevent people from searching all kinds of stuff. I just want to quote you on page 171 of your book. After what we've been talking about this hour and all these monuments and idols and things that are set up, statues across North America in our cities, you say, quote, I wonder what first century Christians would think if they could be transported to America for the intent of gazing upon the nation's display of classical paganism. How would they respond? And you say, not with shock, but with familiar recognition of a pagan enchantment. That is so profound just in those words, Carl, and I think we'll wrap up the interview with just just quoting you and saying, man, there's so much in this book, Game of Gods. We'll put the link to it and uh, po- the podcast post at standardforthetruth.com. Any closing thoughts, Carl? We've got about 30 seconds. Well, I, I, first of all, I just want to thank you, David, for, for giving me the opportunity Absolutely. Uh, to, to be able to share with your with yourself and your audience. But, you know, we, we live in a time where there's a lot of fear, but the question becomes this, who do we ultimately put our trust in? Amen. Do we put our trust in man? Do we put our trust in the creation? Or do we put our trust in the Creator, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ? Carl Tykrip, Game of Gods. We will talk to you, Lord willing, again soon, my friend. God bless you. Stay healthy. Okay, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Oh, my goodness, so much. Always, always. When we get, You know, I kind of go, what direction will this interview today take? And we, we only covered like two and a half pages of his book. Oh, Lord. So we'll have Carl back. But thank you so much, guys. We, when we come back, we'll talk about some exciting new guests next week on Stand Up For The Truth. Stand Up For The Truth, a ministry of Lakeshore Communications Incorporated. Keep the discussion going on social media. Stand Up WI on Facebook and Twitter. Now, we wrap up today's Stand Up For The Truth. Wow. Uh, Next week, uh, we're going to continue the theme Monday with first-time guest Stephen Bancars. He's a former New Ager who is deeply into it. And uh, he's got a book out. We're talking about the uh, increase in paganism and the New Age movement in America with Stephen Bancars. He's got powerful testimony. I'm so excited to talk to him on Monday. Tuesday, Don Vino will be back with us, and he's got a book out about Richard Rohr and the Enneagram. And then Wednesday, um, Bruce Baker. He's an author. He's got a terminal disease, ALS, and he is in hospice. But uh, we're going to be talking about perspective as we go through this coronavirus here in America. But Bruce is going to give us some perspective. He's a pastor, uh, retired now from Texas, and I can't wait to talk to Bruce Baker. And then Jan Markell next Thursday. We're always excited to get an update from her. Friday next week, Todd Nettleton, Voice of the Martyrs, update on Christian persecution. So many great guests, and we thank you guys for keeping us going, not only in your prayers, but your financial support. So thanks for sharing us on social media. God bless you, and always keep speaking the truth about things that matter.